person that we're talking to today is somebody that does independent journalism better than anybody. She is one of the most popular news personalities in independent media. She is a populist who has shown an ability to question everything and a willingness to question everything. And one of the things that uh, I was watching with a great deal of interest is that it seemed like one of the best-regarded establishment media entities in the entire country, a news publication called The Hill, actually recognized what was happening in this country, what was happening with people like uh, Joe Rogan and others, and said, uh, all right, we're going to tap in to the audience and to the abilities and to the substantial talents of Kim Iverson. Well... That experiment was short-lived. Who is Kim Iverson and why is she no longer on the Hill? Those are a few of the issues that we are going to explore within the next few minutes. I am very, very pleased to be joined by uh, independent political commentator, populist news personality, Kim Iverson. Kim, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, Frank, thanks for having me. So uh, I always tr- try to showcase all points of view on this uh, on this show, uh, political personalities, left wing, right wing, no wing, whatever. But I always try to give the audience a, a little bit of a, a perspective as to where folks are coming from. This way, they don't think I'm trying to uh, push a left wing agenda or a right wing agenda without them knowing it. And they can kind of guard themselves against whatever perceived biases a guest might have. Now, just if folks don't don't know where you're coming from or they haven't followed your YouTube channel or the things that you've been doing. Can you give folks a primer on how you describe your own politics, your own ideology? Yeah. So I would say that I, I, I come from the left. Um, I've been a progressive is how I labeled myself. I no longer label, label myself as a progressive because that term has drastically changed. So I would say that I was a Bernie Sanders supporter in 2016, not as much in 2020, um, but more so in 2016, really was into the working class, you know, his, his policies for the working class, helping people, um, really helping Americans achieve that middle class American dream that has been so long gone. You know, it just seems to be kind of dwindling away. And then I would say that uh, over time and just being more, doing more research, getting more involved, um, reading more and seeing things more, I shifted further away, I would say, from, I don't know, I don't know if the progressive side changed or if I changed. It's, it's one of those debates. Mm. Um, but I no longer, you know, now I'm in the camp where I'm definitely independent. Um, I agree with both sides on different things. I still say, I, I still would say I lean left that I'm more on the left, but an independent leftist that is definitely a populist. So it's, yeah, so it's a tough, tough place. I mean, people on the left say I'm a right winger. (laughs) So I get called a right winger from everybody on the left. But then people on the right, when I talk to conservatives, like, for example, I went on Glenn Beck's show, he invited me out to Dallas and um, and, and went to his studio. And I, I was on a couple of the shows that are with the blaze. And when I sat with the conservatives, they definitely would say, 
that I was not a conservative. Right. Uh, even, that, yeah. That's one of the things that I, uh, maybe I, I has caused me to like you because I feel like I'm maligned from both the, the right and the left for being insufficiently whatever they would like me to be. Uh, so uh, that is uh, certainly something that uh, I think we're, we're kindred spirits on. You know, what's interesting about you is uh, a big part of your career in broadcasting was spent on the FM radio dial, and you would do a lot of standard FM style uh, talk topics for, I'm not, you know, being pejorative at all, but kind of lighter talk topics, stuff dealing with relationships and, and the things that you might hear on FM talk stations. If you look at the kind of work you're doing now, it is very heavy, very weighty. You're covering, you're slaying every sacred cow that there is, vaccines, the IRS, foreign policy. Can you give folks a little bit of your career trajectory, how you went from being sort of a, a lighthearted FM radio host to being a an internet news personality these days that covers some very heavy topics? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I started in radio, so I'm actually a radio person um, who then kind of went into independent media, but I was with several of the large radio companies. Um, I actually was syndicated in the end. I had I was syndicated twice over. Had two different syndicated shows, and yeah, they were very light. I would say they were they were call in radio shows um, that were love and relationships and women women's lifestyle topics. And I would talk about things that women were interested primarily, even though half my audience was still male. Um, it, it, the target audience was women, and people would call in every night. I did it Monday through Friday for five hours a night. And did that for over ten years. And what would happen is when we were off the air, I would talk politics to my producer in the studio. <laughs> I would just, we would turn off the microphone. And mm. when we were in a, in, a, in a break, I would suddenly just start talking politics. And uh, shortly after Trump won the election, this was I left radio actually that December. So Trump won that November in 2016. And I left in that, that December. And I knew I wanted to go into politics and really – Trump winning was sort of my impetus. I was really upset that Trump won in 2016. I was one of those people where I cried and I was like, oh, no, this is the worst thing. You know, I was really naive. And I just, I just really thought, oh, this is the worst thing to ever happen. I gobbled up pretty much mainstream media. I didn't know any better. I was a person who had a job, a different job. I wasn't paying that. I was just reading the headlines like everyone else and tuning into CNN like everybody else. So I, when he won, I thought, okay, now's the time. I got to go talk politics. And it was when I, I started doing independent media. Um, actually, I, I, I kind of got into politics slowly. I didn't start my own show, but I was just learning and kind of working for other companies and doing some writing. And then finally, I decided to launch my own show. But by the time that rolled around, which is about two years later of me just kind of learning more about politics and working for companies, is when I realized, wow, I have I've changed and I do not fit in anywhere anymore. There's no company I could go work for. I was working for other big companies that were media companies that did politics. And I just started to disagree with them more and more They're on the left, left wing organizations. And the more I started researching, I just didn't agree with them. And I thought, wow, you guys are, you know, completely, you're taking this out of context. You're not, you know, yeah, Trump said this, but you have to listen to the entire thing that he said. And I started just feeling like I was being lied to. And so by the time two years rolled around and I just realized I got to launch my own show, but I really didn't know if I'd have an audience. I just mm. thought, 
I don't fit in the left or the right anymore. I thought I was on the left. I'm not. I don't know where I fit. So I started my independent channel on YouTube, and it took off. I mean, it just turned out I was not alone in my feelings. Oh, no. It took off. Clearly not. So uh, you go out of your way to cover a lot of the issues that either are ignored by the mainstream media or there's one conventional narrative, even on the left-wing, so-called left-wing mainstream media and the so-called right-wing mainstream media. I, I think the, the issue that you've spent the most amount of attention that, at least recently, that fits this description is the, the vaccine issue. When you pick what subjects to cover on your YouTube show, uh, the Kim Iverson show, and people can just search Kim Iverson on YouTube comes right up or just Go to KimIverson.com. When you pick what subjects to explore, are you consciously looking for issues that are ignored by the rest of the of the mainstream media? Or do you just pick issues that you're interested in and then they happen to be ones that tend to be ignored by the rest of the press? Yeah, it's, it's that's what it is. I, I pick the topics I'm interested in because I'm going to do deep dive, lots of research. I'm going to present lots of information to the audience. And you can only do that if you're really, truly interested in it. So I have just found that the topics I happen to be interested in and the things that I feel passionately about happen to be the things that are not that covered by the mainstream media. Like during the pandemic, I was from the very beginning of the pandemic, I was very much a a skeptic of the lockdowns. Um, I then became vocally against the vaccine mandate. You know, I so I was very against the forced forcing people to give up their jobs, stay out of school, forcing people to take the vaccines. That was something that I covered heavily. I've covered things like protests that have been going on around the world, um, uh, the Great Reset theories and, and World Economic Forum, the IRS and, uh, you know, just a lot of the stuff that as I moved more into this independent populist space over the years, you know, I just really see that the government, I don't feel like it's really, truly working on behalf of the American people. And there's just a lot to expose there. So I just pick the stuff that I find the most compelling the mo- and also just the most important. And I cover it. And it turns out that people, again, you know, people feel the same way. They were just waiting for someone else to say, hey, I, I feel the same way about this. Wow. Someone's actually saying these things. Yeah. And uh, so because you're so outspoken on so many different issues, I I was somewhat surprised when The Hill, which was uh, a digital political newspaper and one of the the, the most mainstream of mainstream political news outlets, when they chose to add you to their hit show, The Rising, and then recently you uh, parted company with, with The Hill and with The Rising, wondering if you could tell folks, I know you've talked a bit about it, but can you tell folks exactly what happened? Why did you and The Hill part company? Uh, Well, when I started with The Hill, it was owned by a different company. It was actually owned by an individual who then sold it Mm. um, to the company that owns it now. And so I was hired by the previous owner, and that previous owner really understood the anti-establishment populist rising that's going on in the country, and he really embraced that. But the ownership quickly transferred to a big corporation. And, um, and, and they really, in the beginning, for a really long time, for months, because I was there for one year exactly, for many, many months, that company really hadn't, they had a hands-off approach. They didn't really know what to do with the Hill or Rising. And so they just kind of left it alone. 
And um, over time, I think there was some thinking that they were kind of wanting to go away from that more anti-establishment populist Mm. sentiment that made the show popular. And they wanted to go in a more mainstream direction. It's still it's still really unclear. But ultimately, what happened was I had been covering the pandemic. That was my main story. I literally brought them millions upon millions of views. And when the time came for Anthony Fauci to be interviewed by the show, they left me out of the interview. They cut me out. They wouldn't allow me to participate in the interview. And I had been telling my audience that I brought to Rising for the last year that I was not being censored. I was not being held back. I was not being limited in any way. And the audience was very shocked that I was allowed to cover a lot of the topics that I was covering that that weren't being covered in other mainstream outlets. So when Fauci was to be interviewed and they flat out told me I could not be a part of that interview, I had no choice. I'd been telling the audience for a year, I'd been promising them that I was not being censored, Mm. that I was not being limited. And when they did that, I told the company, I said, if you do this, I can no longer say that, which means I then I I would have my reputation would be ruined. I would have I would have no choice but to part. I don't I can't stay and continue to tell the audience something's going on here that isn't. So I felt forced, unfortunately, to leave. I didn't have a choice. They, I made it clear to them if they went through with it, what the consequence of that would be. They chose to go through with that anyway. So I'm no longer with the Hill. If, if people just tuning in, we're talking with Kim Iverson. You could check her out on the Kim Iverson show on YouTube and go to kimiverson.com. Why do you think they didn't want you included in that uh, de- questioning of, of Anthony Fauci? It's no secret that you have a, a different perspective, but uh, Anthony Fauci's an intelligent guy. He's certainly been at this long enough that he can handle, uh, one would think, a challenging question or two. Did you get the impression that it was Fauci that didn't want to be questioned by you or was it the Hill itself that didn't want to put Fauci in that position to answer what I'm assuming would have been a series of challenging questions? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't have the answer to that. So I'm not sure if they were protecting Fauci because of because the Fauci's team had sort of requested it or if they were just afraid to even present me to Fauci thinking he would back out of the interview. Mm. Mm. But either way, they just they told me I wasn't going to be a part of it. And I was their main. I mean, there's no question at all amongst anybody who watched that show that I was definitely their main host to cut out the main host. You know, my face was front and center on the logo um, out of all of the hosts. And to cut out the main host from an interview like that, you know, the the, per- the one person you could interview during the pandemic and from that being the thing, the, the topic I covered the most on the show for them to cut me out, the audience knew right away. I didn't even have to say anything. I mean, they did go ahead with the interview, and in the comment section, the people were very angry. They they said, "That's it. I'm done with the hill. I don't trust the hill." And that that was before they knew the, the behind the scenes of what was going on between myself and the company. Mm. I mean, what a shame. It's really, uh, I'm sorry things worked out that way, not only for you, but for consumers of of journalism and for viewers of that show uh, in particular. While I have you here, Kim, I want to pick your brain on one or two other issues in the news that uh, I've enjoyed hearing your perspective on. First, uh, let me ask you about the Alex Jones situation. Obviously, there was a lot of attention paid to this uh, defamation suit in which the judge ruled that uh, Jones was uh, was in default, and we were sort of denied a proper 
First Amendment uh, trial because Jones's legal team made some pretty significant errors, which caused the judge to rule against him before they even got to look at the facts of the case. Uh, That being said, uh, the headlines all over the place, and I know there's going to be a series of other trials as well, just had the large judgment against Jones and in favor of the Sandy Hook parents. Are you concerned, irrespective of how you might feel about Alex Jones, are you concerned that this could lead to a chilling effect in terms of broadcasters that want to question conventional narratives about the news? You know, I'm not 100 percent certain if his attorneys made grave mistakes or if they did this on purpose. Mm. And if they did it on purpose and if if that's the route they chose to go down, then I have all I can do is, you know, despite my personal feelings of coverage that Alex Jones may or may not have done. To be honest with you, I've never really watched them. So I actually remain I'm surprised. I'm very neutral to Alex Jones. I don't have a feeling one way or the other about the guy. I don't watch him, so I don't have any sure. idea. I hear what people say about him, but that to me is not enough for me to, to, for me to form an opinion. Um, but I will say that if they did this on purpose, move to default, because it's not only this case that went to default, but it's the the one that's coming up also has gone to default. So he's going to have another judgment against him. And again, it will read in the headlines like this judgment was against Alex Jones because he did X, Y, Z, and that has nothing to do with it. They never even were able to come to a, you know, liable or not liable because of what he said. You know, that that didn't happen. This was just, well, you didn't turn in the papers on time. And so therefore you're just going to be held liable by default. Um, both of those cases are default. If they continue to default on all of them, then I'll think it was definitely a plan. And if so, then all I can do is thank them, to be honest with you, because that is actually protecting every other independent journalist or really any journalist in general from being sued for sharing their opinions or just questioning, you know, whether or not, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter if what we think Alex Jones is questioning is ridiculous. Right. Somebody could question something. You're like, how could you possibly question that? You're so ridiculous. It doesn't matter. The, the whole point is a person should be allowed to question and to say, I don't know if this happened or I don't really believe that happened. We should be allowed to say that about any event or about anything, even if we look at the person, we roll our eyes and say, oh, my gosh, you're so dumb. It doesn't matter. And so the fact that they I think Alex Jones knows. I mean, I, I would like to think he did this for the greater good of journalism, I suppose. I think he understands that he himself is so disliked that any jury is going to find him liable for mm. anything he says. And that will absolutely impact everybody else in journalism, because suddenly we're all going to be held to that precedent. And it will simply be because the jury was biased against Alex Jones, because the world is biased against him. Maybe rightfully so, or whatever. But that's what that's what we know is they, they hate him. So. Him going to default judgment actually protected journalism. So I hope the rest of his judgments go to default as well. In your video uh, talking about the Alex Jones case, you, you talked about the importance of free speech when it comes to questioning narratives, no matter how bizarre that questioning may be. Uh, and you mentioned the specific examples of uh, people who want to question the moon landing, people who want to question whether or not uh, 9-11 was an inside job. How do you balance, and I ask this as much seeking advice as I am, as I ask it because I'm curious about your perspective about it. How do you balance the desire for putting alternative views on your platform or any platform and uh, the 
the, uh, for lack of a better term, I'll call it the risk or the danger of giving people who are saying something that could be blatantly false a broader platform to win converts to a false, uh, a blatantly false narrative? Well, for me, I only talk about something if I have facts to back it up. So when I was questioning the, the reasoning behind vaccine mandates, I had all the data, all the science that showed the vaccines were not stopping the spread. So there was no reason to then force people into taking it if it wasn't going to have the intention, you know, the att- intended outcome. Um, so I try to make sure that whatever it is I'm talking about, that I have actual facts mm. to bring forward. And then we can say, what is the conclusion we want to make with this? Like when we know the IRS is going to hire 87,000 new agents, We can make some logical conclusions based on not just that information, but supplemental information as well. We know that wealthy people have plenty of tax attorneys and tax, uh, you know, they have accountants and wealth managers that protect them. And we know that they are not paying their fair share legally. They're legally using the system. So those agents are not going to go after people who are legally, and they've made that clear, legally paying their taxes. They're going to go after the other people who don't have the army of protection that these wealthy people have. So when I just I just try to connect information, present it to the audience and then say, you know, this seems to be an obvious conclusion based on these sets of facts. But I think as long as you stick to the facts as facts roll out, then, you know, we can discuss things that seem a bit more controversial. But not always. I get banned. You know, I do get banned even for stating facts. It's uh, so it sounds like on the IRS front, for instance, you're not buying the uh, White House salesmanship of this new legislation that says these 87,000 IRS agents are not going to do anything to go after people that earn less than four hundred thousand dollars. No, I mean, it's all look, I mean, Senator Mike Crapo from Idaho tried to force them to put their put their money where their mouth is by adding an amendment to the legislation saying, okay, then you're not going, you you agree in this legislation that you're not going to go after people who make under $400,000, that we're not going to see higher increase audits, rates of audits on that group. And no Democrat voted for that amendment. So yeah, they're saying something to us, to our faces. But then when it came time to actually put their name on it, they were unwilling to do it. We also know that um, the Democratic, the, this current administration has attempted in numerous ways and done other things in order to get the gig economy to pay more taxes. They tried to go after bank accounts that had more than $600 worth of transactions annually going through them. They wanted the banks to report those transactions. They've now, as of this January, anybody who makes $600 or more through Venmo or Etsy is going to have to report it. I mean, they're, so they've already shown their hand. So they, we've already seen they're going after the people that have a side hustle that are trying to make it through this enormous, unprecedented inflation and skyrocketing housing prices. And they're just going after the people who are just trying to make it. That's what they're doing. They're squeezing us in order to pay for the rescue plan and the Inflation Reduction Act. You've been very generous with your time. I won't keep you too much longer. I do have to ask you, when you left the Hill, the Daily Beast, they described you in the headline as a conspiracy theorist. Uh, That's a label that a couple of other media outlets have thrown at you. 
Why do you think you get besmirched with a pejorative term like that? And how do you react when a, a mainstream news publication like the Daily Beast refers to you as a conspiracy theorist? I mean, I just, you know, to me, they, they're a, a, a tabloid publication. I mean, they're not to be taken seriously, but I realize people do. So there's nothing I can really do about it. But certainly, you know, calling someone a conspiracy theorist is just what you do when you don't have any facts to argue against their points. They call, I mean, think about this. The reason they call me a conspiracy theorist is because I said over and over and over on the hills rising that the vaccines don't stop the spread. That's all I said over and over and over again. We now know that as fact. That's fact. I think everybody knows this. And yet I'm still labeled by the Daily Beast a conspiracy theorist. I mean, they're a joke at this point. That's do a you, joke. Do you see any hope? I mean, uh, I know you mentioned you were an enthusiastic Bernie Sanders supporter in 2016. Uh, I see so many areas of commonality, both in terms of some specific policy issues like uh, like trade and uh, no more endless foreign wars, but also a general view of uh, of Washington and of uh, the mainstream press. I see so many areas of commonality between populist Trump supporters and populist Sanders supporters. Do you see any possibility that that kind of left-right-center populist coalition could lead to some exciting things either on the political front or the media front in the near future? Well, you know, it's a good question. I don't know politically. I mean, I know a lot of people on the populist left, like myself, that have become more independent now are very alarmed, you know, by a lot of the persecution that goes on, you know, and a lot of it aimed at Trump. I mean, they're just really going after him for anything they possibly could try to throw at him. So I think that there's a lot of people aligning and saying, I, you know, I'm definitely not going to vote for any Democrats. I'm, but it's media wise, you know, I think if somebody wanted to make a lot of money, I think if a company out there wanted to make a lot of money, they would be very smart to tap into that populist independent mm. sentiment that's mm. rising. None of them are doing it. I think CNN's learning a hard lesson, though, you know, especially after CNN plus crashed and burned after 10 days. I think they're starting to realize their viewpoints are actually not popular. They're speaking to a very small group of people and the independent voices out there like Joe Rogan you know, are growing in popularity. And even myself, right, I, my viewership on the Hill, I gained, even on my private YouTube channel, I have more viewers than a lot of the people that are broadcasting on CNN. So at some point, you think that these guys would wake up. But the problem is, is that it's against their interests right. to have the populist anti-establishment rise up. Uh, Kim, it is a real pleasure to talk with you. I hope we could do this again soon. I really enjoyed the conversation. Absolutely. People could check out the Kim Iverson show on YouTube or just go to KimIverson.com.